Uh, as many of you know, there was recently a triple murder in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, by uh, committed by a person named Craig Stephen Hicks, who um, is still alive. This is not was not a suicide murder. So undoubtedly, we'll one day hear what his conscious motives were. But he killed three young people, uh, apparently over a parking space. At least that was the the um, the subject of of their dispute. But he happens to have been a person who identified as an atheist on his Facebook page and expressed uh, admiration for people like Richard Dawkins. Uh, he might have said something about me. I'm I'm actually not sure. But he. Um, he was self-identified as an atheist and critical of all religion, apparently, on his Facebook page. And because the victims of this crime were Muslim, uh, it is now being widely described as a hate crime. And uh, it, in fact, is being described as a symptom of a problem that we have in the atheist community, a problem of of militancy, a problem of anti-Muslim bigotry, and many people are claiming that I am somehow responsible for this, both for the the background problem and for the murders themselves, which is is quite an amazing thing to be accused of. So it seems to me there, there's a fair amount of moral confusion here, and also just factual confusion about the, the reality of human violence in the U.S. and elsewhere. But the first thing to say is that I feel nothing but horror over this crime. Uh, these people were killed in the very prime of their life, at the, at the beginning of their adult lives. And they were, by all accounts, marvelous people. I can only imagine, in fact, I can't imagine, the grief of their parents and their loved ones. So there, there's absolutely nothing in my work or in my mind that is supportive of a crime like this. And I would, would have hoped that could go without saying. I think in this context, it probably can't. Nevertheless, the deluge of claims of equivalence between this crime and the Charlie Hebdo atrocity, or the daily behavior of a group like ISIS, has been astonishing to witness. And you can sense that people have just been waiting for a crime like this that could conceivably be pinned on atheism. But of course, the, the analogy between militant atheism and militant Islam is a terrible one. It is an anti-analogy. It is false in every respect. Atheists are simply not out there harming people on the basis of their atheism. Now, there may be atheists who do, do terrible things, but there's no atheist doctrine or scripture. And insofar as any of us have written books or created arguments, that have persuaded people, these books and arguments, insofar as they're atheistic, only relate to the bad evidence put forward in defense of a belief in God. There's no argument in atheism that suggests that you should hate or victimize or stigmatize whole groups of people, as there often is in revealed religion. And what we're seeing is that people like Glenn Greenwald and Reza Aslan and the usual suspects, the bevy of apologists for theocracy in the Muslim world, are using this very real tragedy in Chapel Hill to try to stoke a kind of mob mentality around the, an imagined atheist campaign of bigotry against Muslims. It's an incredibly cynical and tendentious and opportunistic and ultimately dangerous thing to do. 
Of course, people like Glenn Greenwald and Reza Aslan are alleging that there's some kind of double standard here, that, that atheists are so quick to detect a religious motivation in the misbehavior of Muslims worldwide. But when it comes to their own, well, then they discount the role played by atheism. But this is just a total misrepresentation of how an atheist like myself thinks about human violence. It is simply obvious that some instances of Muslim violence have nothing whatsoever to do with Islam. And I would never dream of assigning blame to the religion of Islam for that behavior. And to my knowledge, I never have. And insofar as I'm ever confused about the source of Muslim violence, well then, I apologize in advance for that confusion. But the problem, of course, is that there are teachings within Islam that explicitly recommend, in fact demand, violence in certain circumstances. Circumstances which we in the 21st century, if we are decent human beings, will recognize as being morally insane. Apostasy, blasphemy, adultery, merely holding hands with a man who is not your blood relative or husband, uh, if you are a, um, a woman unlucky enough to be born in a country like Afghanistan. These are rather often killing offenses. And the link between the doctrine, as it is understood by Islamists and jihadists at this point, and the behavior is explicit, it's logical, it is absolutely unambiguous. And yet this doesn't prevent people from denying it at every turn. Now, there is no such link between atheism or secularism and violence of any kind in any circumstance. There's nothing about rejecting the truth claims of religious dogmatists. There's nothing about doubting that the universe has a creator that suggests that violence in certain circumstances is necessary or even acceptable. And all the people who are comparing these murders to Charlie Hebdo or to ISIS, as insane as that sounds, uh, are really trivializing a kind of violence that threatens to destabilize much of the world. And ironically, it is violence whose principal victims are Muslim. I would also point out that the idea that there's some kind of epidemic of hate crime against Muslims in the United States is totally at odds with the facts. You need only check the FBI website, and you'll see that there is no such wave of religious bigotry d directed against Muslims or directed against anyone at all, in fact. Hate crime is a, a very rare offense. Five people were murdered on the basis of hate crime in 2013. And when you look at the hate crimes directed at people based on religious bigotry, the crimes against Jews based on anti-Semitism outnumber the crimes against Muslims five to one. And this is every year, and this is even in 2002 in the immediate aftermath of 9-11. So if we're going to be concerned about hate crime in the U.S., we should be concerned about anti-Semitism before we worry about anti-Muslim hate crime. And the level of anti-Semitism in the U.S. is minuscule when you're talking about violence against persons. Now, I wouldn't say the same thing of France, but in the U.S., it is virtually a non-problem, especially when you compare it to the tens of thousands of ordinary murders and rapes and aggravated assaults that happen on the basis of purely interpersonal violence. You know, people are saying that this, that this could not possibly have been a triple murder 
born of a neighbor's dispute over a parking space. But this is the most common form of interpersonal violence. It, it never makes sense on paper. You're talking about people who fail to regulate their emotional states, and they have, in the U.S., ready access to weaponry that makes it incredibly easy to kill someone impulsively. So hate crime per se is not a major problem, and the people who are trying to whip up a frenzy of concern over the ambient level of bigotry and intolerance and violence against Muslims in the U.S. are really trying to engineer a kind of moral panic designed to distract people from the real problems that Muslims face, and that we all face, frankly, which is this basic incompatibility between a 7th century theocracy and our collective aspiration to build a truly pluralistic and global civil society. You can understand this all through the lens of free speech, right? That this is where, this is all you need to consider. A phenomenon like Charlie Hebdo or the Satanic Verses. And for some reason, people on the left have aligned themselves with theocrats and people who are truly intolerant, intolerant of the very liberal values that apologists for Islam think they're enunciating. As I've said before, tolerance of intolerance is just cowardice, and it's, it's a cowardice that's increasingly consequential. So this analogy between so-called militant atheism and militant Islam is essentially a moral hoax. The thing that very few people seem able to distinguish, and the distinction that Greenwald and Aslan obfuscate at every opportunity, is, is the difference between criticizing ideas and their results in the world and hating people as people because they belong to a certain group uh, or because they have a certain skin color or because they came from a certain country. There, there is no connection between those two orientations. The, the, the latter is, of course, bigotry, and uh, I would condemn it as harshly as anyone would hope. But criticizing ideas and their consequences is absolutely essential, and that, that is the spirit in which I have criticized Islam in various flavors and Christianity and Judaism and Buddhism, and, and all of these criticisms are different because these belief systems are different. So that's the distinction that one has to recognize, and the clarity of that distinction leads to a kind of experience in the world that our critics seem to not imagine is possible. So, for instance, after I had that collision with Ben Affleck on Bill Maher's show Real Time, where I uttered this now infamous line, Islam is the motherload of bad ideas, as I've said before, I, I think I slightly misspoke there. I should have said it is a motherload of bad ideas. It's not the only motherload of bad ideas, but it's uh, the one that, frankly, concerns me most at this moment in history. Afterwards, uh, I was in a restaurant and... Uh, a maitre d' in that restaurant came up and introduced himself and said he recognized me from the show, and he was Muslim, and the resulting conversation was nothing but a positive encounter between two people who had very different views of Islam. It was no surprise to me, and there was, and there was no difficulty in acknowledging that my blanket condemnation of Islam didn't capture his feeling as a devout and peaceful Muslim about the significance of his faith. I understand that, and he understood where I was coming from. He understood I wasn't talking about him when I'm talking about the problem with ideas like jihad and martyrdom and apostasy. We had this conversation in a spirit of 
absolute mutual respect and tolerance. There was not a scintilla of bigotry in my mind. Uh, and this guy was the nicest guy in the world, right? So I, I've been back to the restaurant since, you know, hugged him. There's absolutely nothing hostile about my orientation toward individual people who happen to be Muslim. Now, given the requisite beliefs on their part, the hostility will be inevitable. If I'm, if I'm in the presence of a Muslim who thinks that infidels are the scum of the earth, we're not going to be hugging each other. But the idea that somehow my criticism of concepts leads me to hate people is just, there's, there's no point of contact between that and my actual psychology. And I'm sure this is true of Richard Dawkins, and it was true of Hitch, and it's true of Lawrence Krauss, and every other prominent atheist who unfortunately has to waste a fair amount of his or her life criticizing the terrible ideas of religion. Not to put too fine a point on this, but the, the psychological reality of being a so-called militant atheist seems to be so difficult for our critics to imagine that I, I feel like I need to give another example. So I'm writing this book with Majid Nawaz, who I've mentioned before on this podcast. No doubt many of you are aware of who he is, but he's a former Islamist, now a Muslim reformer, brilliant, interesting, indispensable, uh, who I now consider a friend. I didn't He wasn't a friend before this collaboration because we didn't know each other, but now uh, I consider him a friend and actually a personal hero. He's an immensely courageous man. So he and I are collaborating on this book, uh, the title of which is Islam and the Future of Tolerance. And as you'll see in this book, much of it has the character of a debate where you know I am pushing uh, somewhat hard on specific ideas within Islam, and he is telling me how these ideas are susceptible to more benign interpretation so as to move uh, Islam forward into the 21st century. But the crucial point is I don't have to censor myself on the topic of Islam to have this conversation. Majid knows exactly what I think about Islam and concepts like jihad and martyrdom and apostasy. He knows exactly what I think about the treatment of women throughout the Muslim world. There is no contradiction between having a civil but nonetheless hard-hitting and searching conversation about a very important, even inflammatory topic, and having a positive ethical orientation toward the person you're arguing with. I actually said something to this effect in a recent Washington Post article, and Glenn Greenwald linked to this on Twitter, saying that Sam Harris wants us to know that he has a Muslim friend. So he's, he's accusing me of using the, the some of my best friends are black defense. And he also branded Majid as a critic of Islam, dismissing him as a mere critic of Islam. And therefore, of course, he's the kind of Muslim I would associate with. Uh, so so he's, he treats Majid like an Uncle Tom. And please remember, this is coming from a gay Jew living safely outside the Muslim world who would be hurled from a rooftop any place within it. Now, perhaps the most charitable interpretation I can give to this behavior is that people like Greenwald and Aslan think that my criticism of Islam and the criticism of the new atheists generally uh, is so easily misunderstood by mentally unbalanced or racist or xenophobic people that it's dangerous. It's dangerous to focus on Islam because bad people will misinterpret the significance of this focus and commit murders of the sort we just witnessed in North Carolina. Now, let me concede, it's certainly possible that the murders in North Carolina 
were a hate crime. It could be that when Hicks starts talking, he'll tell us how much he hates Muslims and he just wanted to kill a few. And he might even say he read The God Delusion and The End of Faith and God is Not Great and took from these books some kind of rationale to victimize Muslims at random. I think it is incredibly unlikely that that's the case. I will be flabbergasted if Hicks says that his atheism drove him to commit these murders. Whereas the next jihadist will almost certainly say that his religion mandated that he behave the way he did. But perhaps people like Greenwald and Aslan think that criticizing Islam is just dangerous because it can be misunderstood by bad people. Well, by that standard, we can't criticize anything. This, as, as Ali Rizvi pointed out, this would be like saying we can't criticize U.S. foreign policy because some number of people overseas will become so agitated by this criticism, by reading Noam Chomsky or Glenn Greenwald, that they will then kill U.S. tourists at random. Is that possible? Sure, it's possible. But we have to be able to criticize U.S. foreign policy. And some of what people like Chomsky and Greenwald write about U.S. foreign policy is correct. Should they be held responsible if some deranged person takes their writing and uses it as a basis for intolerance or even murder? No, of course not. And the same can be said for any criticism of the doctrine of Islam. And I want to make one thing very clear. In saying or writing or otherwise publishing the opinion that I have blood on my hands and then backing that up with conscious misrepresentations of my views about Islam, that is a dangerous thing to do. It's dangerous for me. It's not dangerous for Greenwald and Aslan, and they know it, but it is dangerous for me. It increases the risk to me and my family from religious lunatics in the Muslim community. Now, both Aslan and Greenwald know that some number of people among their readers are proper lunatics, you know, the goons and madmen who are organized entirely around this variable of Islam and its importance to their lives and to the future of humanity. And if you tell them, as Greenwald and Aslan repeatedly have, whether in their own words or by circulating the lies of others, that I want to nuke the Muslim world, or that I want to round Muslims up for torture, or that I'm a genocidal fascist maniac, or that I want to profile dark-skinned people at airports, or that I want to kill people for thought crimes, or that I have blood on my hands for the murders of three beautiful young people in North Carolina. This is dangerous, and I've asked them to stop it, and I'm asking them to stop it again. I'm about to release a book on Islam with Majid Nawaz. Majid has serious security concerns. He is my co-author, telling millions of people that I have incited hatred against Muslims that led to the deaths of these poor people in North Carolina is totally unethical. Aslan and Greenwald are mendacious bullies. They're making it unsafe to criticize bad ideas that absolutely have to be criticized. There is no view that I have ever published that I am hiding from. I've written about torture and profiling, but none of my views reduce to anything that could be the basis of hatred of whole groups of people. And it's, it's very difficult. It may, just may, in fact, be impossible 
to counter these lies once they are in circulation. Just as I was making this podcast in the last few hours, there was an incident in Denmark where a meeting about these issues, about free speech and blasphemy and, and the drawing of cartoons, was attacked by a terrorist. And one person died and several people were injured, and then this terrorist went on to kill someone at a synagogue. In fact, you can hear the audio on the BBC website. Actually, I'll play it for you. This is what it's like for peaceful people to gather in a cafe and attempt to have a conversation on these issues in an open society. Um, I realized that every time we talk about activity of those people, there will be always, yes, it is freedom of speech, but, and the turning point is but. Why do we still say but when we... ask yourself, what kind of world do you want to live in? What kind of world do you want your kids to live in? This is the world you're living in now. And as someone who is spending a fair amount of time dealing with these issues, I can tell you that I no longer feel safe doing so. And apart from jihadists themselves, there is no one I know of who's making this job less safe than people like Glenn Greenwald and Reza Aslan. And not just for me, obviously, but I'm talking about those people in Copenhagen. I'm talking about people in open societies everywhere who have to deal with this growing menace of jihadism. Unless we can speak honestly about this, unless we can resist the theocratic demands being placed on us, we will lose our way of life. In fact, we have already lost it in many respects. We have to reclaim our freedom of speech. So if you care about living in an open society that doesn't more and more resemble Jerusalem or Beirut, if you care about free speech, real freedom of speech, not merely its political guarantee, but the reality of being able to speak about what you need to speak about in public without being murdered by some maniac or without having to spend the rest of your life being hunted by a religious mob, if you care about my work or the work of other secularists and atheists, or that of Muslim reformers like Majid Nawaz, or apostates like Ayan Hirsi Ali, if you care about our ability to notice and criticize and correct for bad ideas, then you have to condemn this behavior. You have to condemn the deliberate manufacture of lies designed to make it unsafe to have honest conversations. So. Please push back against this. Please lose your patience for shocking displays of intellectual dishonesty on the part of people like Glenn Greenwald and Reza Aslan and all the other commentators who obfuscate the plain reality of religious fanaticism. Your response to this really matters. The things you do on your own blogs and on social media and in comment threads really make a difference. Thanks for your help. If you find this podcast valuable, there are many ways you can support it. You can review it on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you happen to listen to it. 
You can share it on social media with your friends. You can blog about it or discuss it on your own podcast. Or you can support it directly. And you can do this by subscribing through my website. at samharris.org. And there you'll find subscriber-only content, which includes my Ask Me Anything episodes. You'll also get access to advanced tickets to my live events, as well as streaming video of some of these events. And you'll also get to hear the bonus questions from many of these interviews. All of these things and more you'll find on my website at samharris.org. Thank you for your support of the show. It's listeners like you that make all of this possible.